Welcome to the Forging Honor Podcast. I'm Jonathan George. And I'm Benjamin Jones. Here at The Forge, we explore what it means to live as Christian men. Along the way, we'll be doing weekly challenges to build character through action. We are by no means experts, just two young Christian men trying to make sense of a wild world. That's right. We do our best to learn and hope you'll join us on the journey. If you want to get directly involved, go to ForgingHonor.com to find information on how to join our community. This is episode 22. Producer check. This is 23. Art of the Craft. Remastered. All right, challenge wrap-up time. As a reminder, challenges last for 10 days. That's Monday through Friday for two weeks. They're simple daily tasks to grow us as men. This previous challenge, pretty simple, study a craft each day. What do we mean by craft, Banjo? Uh, we mean a an artistic endeavor, not an athletic one, uh, where, well, I guess it could be mechanical. I could see a mechanical craft. It's a, it's something where you have to, to, man, we really should have had like a working definition of craft. Like a better uh, one than what like you're a, doing right now. Yeah, the better one. Yeah. I'm not a master of this craft. But the long and the short of it is, it's it's something that you have to work on, something that you have to get better at, um, and something that has like uh, a quality of beauty about it, like something where you have to take pride in it, something where you have to you're striving for excellence. Is I think what we said on but our last episode. And this this was not the same thing as working on that craft, but studying it, right? Yeah, so yeah, we were we were specifically talking about find a master, find somebody right. who is really good at, at whatever craft you're interested in. Um, or whatever artistic thing you're you're wanting to study and and learn what mastery looks like, and because we're talking about um, just to refresh our memories, we were talking about how um, with with that kind of level of mastery, there's a level of skill that's required um, that we don't really see in the same way anymore. I don't think in artistic pursuits, you know, it's the difference between having to to learn every inch of the guitar in order to be a rock star. Um, and having to master, you know, your computer keyboard to put those electronic sounds together. And I mean, there's, there's skill and talent involved in both, but there's a level of mastery, I think with, with a a physical guitar, that's maybe a little bit more impressive. So we just wanted to talk about those kinds of things. Now I offended all of the people who are electric keyboardists on our listening to our show. Oh yeah, you definitely did. Actually, there was someone who was talking to me who was like, I don't I didn't really like Banjo's comments about the electric stuff. <laughs> I, I think there's a whole thing to be I think the craft there is different than maybe yeah. what you're going for. And I do think that there's something there. Well, we let's let's get into that after we do our challenge yeah, wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, challenge wrap up. For myself, um, I kind of jumped around a little bit. I didn't I, I focused like kind of the more artistic stuff on on Stevie Ray Vaughan. I've been really getting back mm-hmm. into Stevie Ray Vaughan. Really enjoyed some of that. Um, but I also took some time just to explore, you know, what does it take to become an expert and like what are the signs of an expert? Yeah. Um, so I sent you some videos um, on with Paul Harrell mm-hmm. and then Banjo. So he is a master of his craft. He is a true, he, he's a, what's kind of called a gun tuber. He YouTubes about guns. He's an old, older guy. Um, he has... Uh, military experience background he knows what he's talking about he's really worked at this um and i'm someone who i really i think guns are cool i like shooting guns tons of fun yeah i don't actually know a lot about them like i've really worked to know about my particular gun because i need to know about it right to be safe right 
that said, there's more I want to learn and there's other guns I want to shoot and I want to learn about them. Um, so I turn to those, those experts. So I don't know if you would categorize that as like an artistic craft. I don't know. I think shooting could almost like, there's something beautiful about it in a way. Like when you hit it, just, I don't know. It's, it's good. There's a, well, there's a, yeah, there's a talent to it. I think, I think my, um, my word artistic there could be, could be stretched pretty thin and, and the way you used it, having to work at something. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. So let's not, let's not limit it to the arts, but I think we were aiming at something different than like athletics. Right. Yes. Well, and I, I would not go so far to say that my time kind of working through some of that was, uh, necessarily, um, artistic or necessarily a piece of that craft. But I do think it lends to this conversation that we have today. Um, what about you, Banjo? Uh, what What'd you get into? How many days did you do? Only ha- I did half of them. You did half. So I think five. I did. I, I have to check Discord again. But I I believe what I got oh, done. And was, I'm sorry I interrupted. I, I'm sorry. I didn't even put them in the Discord. I, I should ah. say I've been terrible about the Discord. Yes. I need to, Shame. I need to get back on that. Yeah. Shame. No, I did. Uh, it, was, it was either eight or nine. Uh, I know I didn't do it yesterday. Um, and I might've missed a day last week, but I can't remember. So I think it was eight or nine. Um, and then I got into a couple of different things. I, I watched some, some John Mayer videos on, on, um, some of his talents, uh, looked at, uh, Max Richter, if you know who that is, uh, kind of a newer, um, newer composer, I guess you'd say, yeah, composer. Um, I watched a bunch of like live performances on YouTube. So I, mine, most of what I was watching was less like a breakdown of how uh, somebody does something. Though I did watch some videos on that specifically with like um, with like movies and and uh, and writing. There were some some breakdowns I saw in that that were more walk you walk you through the process of mastery. Um, but a lot of what I did was doing was just kind of sitting in someone someone's like. Uh, someone's work and trying to figure out, okay, what are the, what's the level of detail that's here and, and what makes this, per, what would, makes this person a master of their craft as opposed to me, who's very far away from right. mastery. That's an interesting, I, I like that process. I think um, one thing that stuck out to me was there was the part of me that was like, okay, I'm going to go listen to this, whatever the Steve Ray Vaughn album or listen to the song a couple times. And then there's the side that's like, I could do that, but that can become too passive. I feel like, like you like there's the sitting in it, like you're talking about, but how do you sit in it? Well, how, what are the questions to be asking? I think that's a big piece of, of the puzzle for me, which is why I turn to YouTube with finding experts. They'll tell you what questions to ask. Yeah. So what questions did you find to ask? I think um, some of the main ones are kind of what you, from the very from the very get go. You know what drives an expert, right? Because someone I th- I think could be passively not paying attention to it, but I think there has to be a love and a passion in order for them to truly become an expert on the subject. Hmm. Because that's some that, that or at least that's something I noticed across all the disciplines that I that I pay, was paying attention to. Um. I think on top of that, every expert is always asking what, what is out there that I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. An expert is never saying, oh, I've already got this. They're always asking what I don't know. And that can only be driven because they truly love the subject. Yeah, the more, the more you know, the less you know constantly with these. With exactly, them. exactly. 
Yeah. You ever uh, you ever heard of a guy uh, Benjamin Zander? No, no. He's a um, he's a conductor. I forget which which organization he's with now. But there's a really cool uh, TED Talk video that he does where he talks about one butt playing, and he talks about um, he says when you're you know when you're a first year student you know you're just practicing your scales and he's like at the piano and he's like practicing the scales and he's like and you hate it and then but you're not very good and all the timing's off. And then basically he goes through like this one piano piece and he shows you like the, like four or five different stages of a piano player. Um, and the one where most people stop at is like, you can play all the notes correctly, but there's like no life to it. And you're just like, you, you know, the way he puts it yep, is yep. your butts in the chair and it's stiff. And then he moves up one level to like the the master, the expert, the one who's been playing for like 15 years. And you see his like his body's like sways and it's like moving all over the place. Uh, and he like lifts like halfway up out of the chair and he says, this is one butt playing because um, you got one one cheek on the seat and that's it. Uh, that's funny. That's funny. Because their whole body is into the music and and like all of of their presence has gone into the music uh and it's a really interesting thing to watch just like to see those people who are like a hundred percent in you know to the point where their body is being lifted out of the chair you know you can do that on anything but um, it's a really good video video i highly recommend checking it out well and they're a hundred percent in at the exclusion of so many other things yeah i think that's something that that was something i was thinking about when it came to running was mm-hmm. i think and I relied on this to some extent myself, but there's a lot of folks that come into running and they have enough natural talent to get by. Yeah. Right. It, when I first started running, it did not take very much training for me to get to a level where people could be somewhat impressed by, by what I could do on the track or on, on the cross country course. That said, mm-hmm. that talent can only take, could only take someone so far. Right. And for myself, I was kind of middle of the pack when it came to talent. So I really had to work to start getting some of those faster times. But I saw some people come in and just crush times without ever having to practice. But as soon as they came up to more difficult challenges, they couldn't they couldn't handle them. Yeah. And I think that's something that can set, you know, somewhat like let's say the piano player who maybe loves the piano and has enough natural talent to get into it, but then they really have to work at it to really become a master, versus someone who's just so talented that their first challenge doesn't come for years. Right. Yeah. And I'm not sure that those people become masters. I think they're just talented. No, that said, I mean, talent can take you a long way. You know, we talked about this like in basketball, like undoubtedly there are some basketball players that are just more talented than others. How much do they have to work to excel at that? And you have, you have to have the discipline in order to become an expert. You have to have, you have to have the willingness to like to sit down and, and memorize the scales or just to work through the fundamentals constantly. Um, I see that a lot with, like students at school teaching them where it's like, and I, and I was this way when I was a kid. All right, wait, let me rephrase that. I'm still this way. Um, where I come up to a problem and I'm, I'm used to being able to solve problems fairly quickly. Right. So then when I come up to a problem that is, that is not easy to solve, I often have moments where it's like, well, I just, I guess I just can't do it. Like I'm, I'm just not going to bother with it. I experienced that in in math. Yeah. Because I didn't need to study math through high school. Like it was 
algebra, all, you know, all you just geometry, it. just stuff just came naturally. As soon as I hit calculus for the first time, suddenly nothing makes sense. I can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I, well, I could, but I had to put effort into it. Yeah. Like, right. It didn't, it wasn't just immediately apparent to me what the answer was on a page or how the process to get there. Suddenly calculus, I'm going, okay, well, wait a minute. Now I have to understand this new formula or this new thing. Like, I, you know, it just was, it turned into this in total struggle for me. And, and, you know, I ended up switching uh, majors because of that. Yeah. And I went, I went a different route, a route that I was less comfortable with, but one that I ultimately enjoyed more. And I think the passion helped me push through the harder, harder times in that. Yeah. That was me with languages. Like I'm, I'm, I'm fairly good with English. I, I can speak it fluently uh, most mm, of the time, ah. sometimes three quarters of the time. Um, and, and I, I was supposed to learn French in high school, hated it, absolutely hated it. Um, and then tried to do it again in college, absolutely bombed it. I'm in my defense. It was in the middle of February. It was my first 8 a.m. class freshman year, and I was not ready for that. That is rough. And it was in the cold winter, and it was on the other side of campus. So the deck was not stacked in my favor. Um, and then I tried to learn Arabic, and that was just as bad, but a little bit better, actually. Um, I actually stayed in the course, so that was, that was a plus. Um, but the whole time, I was just struggling and struggling and struggling, and I couldn't get it. And... I went home at one point and was telling my dad how much I was like not good at, at language. And I was like, I just don't get language. Like, it's just not my thing. And my dad is like, not an angry person ever. This is maybe like the closest I've seen him get to frustrated where he, like, he didn't even raise his voice. He was just like, bitch, you, you just don't put the work in. Like, you you think you know you, that is a call out by your dad wow yes cold cold call out. like yeah you just don't work hard kid sorry it, it was just like he was like all this other stuff comes easily to you so you don't you don't try to learn the languages like if you actually put your mind to it then you can you can learn it um which was a it was a pretty good call out and it's something that i think about a lot because there's a lot of problems that i come up to that i think this like this just isn't how my brain works this just isn't what i want to do and then I, I think about what my dad says and I, I think about what I need to fix and what I need to change. But I mean, I think, you know, there are certain subjects though that still require kind of what I'm talking about, that passion a little bit, that oh, desire yeah. to learn, because otherwise, how do you push past some of those, those fundamentals? Yeah. I, I think, um, now obviously there's a, there's a discipline aspect to it. How do you discipline yourself? Are you asking me or are you? Well, I, I guess somewhat question? rhetorical. I'm, I'm throwing that out there. I, I, I think you do that by kind of setting setting those expectations for yourself in advance. But you have to want it. You have to really want it. There has to be an object at the end of the at the end of the exercise. There has to be something you're aiming for. Yeah. Um, we're speaking of objects to aim for. Were, when you were, what were some of the other things as you were as you were looking at experts, listening to experts that you saw that you're like, okay, so this is what an expert looks like versus this is what an amateur looks like. I think, um, I don't know about the process to get there, but one thing I consistently noticed was, uh, someone that 
is an, an expert, like definitely an expert, will always be constantly saying, well, I don't know that. I'm mm-hmm. not sure about that. I haven't heard of that. Um, and like even, even just in short form videos on YouTube or something, an expert will, will let you know that they don't know everything versus yeah. someone who's trying to be an expert never will admit that. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think that's kind of an outcome of the hours of effort or the hours of practice or the hours of learning, whatever it is that goes into it. And, and that's, again, goes back to that. The, the more, you know, the more you know, you don't know. Yeah. Like, uh, like you were saying, and I think that's something to be watching out for. And just everyone asks, acts like they're an ex- expert on everything in our society. Oh yeah. And said the two but, guys with the podcast. Well, yeah. And that's, that's funny. Um, <laughs> but there has to be a recognition of, okay, I've put this effort in. That doesn't mean I'm the best. That doesn't mean I, I understand this. You know, there's, there's, um, it's, uh, there's a great scene. Have you seen the movie yesterday? No, I have not. Okay. Well there, so it's, I don't know if you know the premise or not, but anyway. Yeah, the uh, premise is the one, this is the one where the Beatles never happened. Yeah, so one guy, like the Beatles, the whole world forgets the Beatles ever happened. Like the Beatles never happened. Yeah. But one guy remembers most of the Beatles songs. And so he starts playing them and he becomes famous off the Beatles songs, right? Right. And there's this amazing scene where he encounters Ed Sheeran. Right. And they have a, they have a little write-off, right? And they're like, all right, you go, you go that room for however many minutes I'll go over here. We're going to both write a song right here, right now. And then we're going to play our songs and let the audience decide who's better. Ed Sheeran plays his song. You know, it's great. Right. Cause even if you don't like aspects of Ed Sheeran's pop writing, like he's a good songwriter. And, and then this guy comes out and he just remembers another Beatles song that yeah. he hasn't played before. He pulls it out. And, uh, I think it's a long and winding road. And Ed Sheeran, like, I, I thought it was a great choice for the movie. He just goes, I mean, it's finally happened. He goes, I, I was always told there someone would come along who was better than me. And it's happened. Like he just kind of <laughs> congratulates him. Like, yeah, this guy is, That's you know, funny. and I thought, well, there's the sign. Like if he had just exploded or something, you would have immediately known, well, Ed Sheeran's a trashy guy. But he, you end up coming away from that interaction with his character in the movie going like, oh, he's a solid guy because he right. just admits it. And I think that's a sign of, of, of an expert who's willing to accept that and willing to push himself harder because of it. Yeah. He's like, when you've, when you've seen, when you've seen a master or when you've seen someone who's better than you, it's not, it's not an attack on, on you. It's a, you got, you got to go, you got to go put in the hours so that you achieve that new level so that you reach that next step of mastery. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. One of the one of the things I watched for for this was the Social Network, um, which you and I talked about a little bit, um, which is a movie I really love. And the the filmmaking in that and the and the dialogue, the script is as a film nerd is like beyond masterful. It's it's great, um, but it, in terms of like character and characters, you know the way that Mark Zuckerberg. For those who, for those who maybe don't know, the Social Network is a is a movie about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and the and the Facebook saga. Um, not entirely accurate, but entirely entertaining. We'll say that. Um, and according to Banjo, well written. Not that it isn't. I just haven't seen it. So. Oh yes, mass. Like I can't even begin to geek out about it enough. Um, anyway, 
and, and I, there's another uh, element of this that I want to get to, but just stick to this train. Um, one of the things that was interesting to watch this time around was as Mark Zuckerberg's character kind of comes up against um, people who disagree with him, who are also having ideas in tech and who are having ideas about these different things. Like he is obviously more, uh, what's the word? Versed. He's obviously more versed in some of these like coding things or like with some of these ideas or with some of the, the concepts that are required for building a website. Um, and, and yet the way that he conducts himself, he, he might be a master of material, but he's not a master of the human race. He's not a master of human interaction. Right. Um, and I always think it's interesting, like what you have to give up, like you, you have to choose, you always have to choose in order to be a master. Like you have to, you have to give up the infinite possibility, you know, the infinite amount of possibilities to go and choose the one thing, you know, and how do you do that? Yeah. That's a question. And so often it's, it's, I'm going to sacrifice my ability to communicate with humanity in order to gain mastery of a thing. You know, so many like geniuses just are, are strange people. Um, and I wonder how much of that is, is just deciding I'm not going to learn the information about people. I'm just going to stick with music or I don't know. Cause I, chess. you know, sometimes it's from a very young age that it may be socially awkward. Sure. As, as it might be termed. It could just be that they literally have a certain amount of, they have so much talent weighted that way that at least I've heard this before. They're so focused on that thing from the very early age that they, I mean, they never even made that choice, but their brain just never put any effort into figuring out people. It was almost already chosen for them. Exactly. In a way. And now I've heard that. I don't know how much I take stock in that. And that, you know, that goes back to the question of like natural talent versus your 10,000 hours, right? Because that's a big thing with... Right. Like you've heard you've heard the 10,000 hours thing, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and like the classic examples is Tiger Woods, like, you know, or or Mozart or whoever. And those are those are examples. I think it's a Malcolm Gladwell idea. He popularized mm-hmm. it anyway. Yeah, um, I, have his, I have his book on my shelf. But then there's a, there, there was another book released. Oh, what was the name of it? I can't remember. I'm sorry, audience. Cannot remember. What, I don't get an apology? No, no, you don't. Because um, I could just tell you, uh, the, the book was on um, kind of wha- how a diversity of masteries or a diversity right. of, of disciplines like can produce mastery in one thing. Yeah, yeah, the classic Renaissance man. And, you know, there's a ton of examples of that. Um, I, I think someone like uh, Tom Brady played a ton of different sports before settling on football, like pretty right. late. And he did not play football from a very young age. Right. Um he played a bunch of other sports or someone like, you know, uh, you know, the, the modern Renaissance man is Viggo Mortensen. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he has, he, before he got into acting, he had a mastery in a ton of other skills. Like he already right. speaks multiple languages. He rides, he, he, he hunts, he does horse riding, he does all kinds of things. And then he decided, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to master acting. Yeah. And he just kind of goes through this process with everything he, he accomplishes. Uh, and, and in some way, someone like that, like he's more personable. He's he he's more interesting to people. Like there's something about a person who uses his previous skills, his previous masteries, and rolls them into the next thing, rather than getting so focused, going way past that ten thousand hours to the point where that's all he is. Right. So that yeah. that's something I was thinking about. Like, because you know, in in my world, people can get so 
hyper-focused on one particular aspect of software. Right. That's all they think about. That's all they talk about. Or you can be a general master, general level. And no, you haven't gone as deep, but you have such a broad understanding that you can you can make anything come together. You can find the person who's the expert. Yeah, you get the the opportunity for lateral thinking opens up. And and you get to see one problem, you know, you might see it as a coder for one second, you might see it as a runner for you know the next second. Exactly. That's something else. Yeah. Yeah. So that was something I, you know, I arrived at a lot of that and, and kind of figuring some of that out. And, you know, those are conversations that I've had before as well. But like, it was interesting kind of just sitting in, in the process of, say, listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan, who's a great musician. I didn't pick up on some of that. I think just because once, like, that's the final, he's giving us the final, the final cut of whatever album, right? Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't see the hours that went into to crafting that. You don't see all the, the expertise that went into that. I think, I think it would, it would almost be better and maybe you did some of this, but to go back and find like some earlier recordings, some early, like find the process that might've been more interesting. Oh, that, yeah, that would be interesting to like what to choose one master and watch them develop over time. Right. That would be interesting. Yeah, no, I didn't do that. That would have been cool. One of the things though, with, with what you're saying, you're like, you got to work on the craft, work on the craft, work on the craft and we're getting the final product. I think that's a, a really good point of like, there's so many first drafts behind a master. Like you don't right. just spit it out and like, here's perfection. Like there's so much work that goes into it beforehand. Well, maybe not you, Banjo. Well, not me, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but like to go back to the social network, um, there's a really famous scene at the beginning of that movie that is about eight minutes long. Um, there's like, how many? No, no, it's, I think it's a five minute scene and it's got eight pages of dialogue, which the usual correlation is one to one. So it's usually you have one page for one minute. They almost doubled it in this, wow. in this scene. That's like, a that's lot of fast dialogue. A lot of fast dialogue. And it's all overlapping. And there's like three conversations happening in one conversation. And there's like, oh, it's so good. Anyway, they did 99 takes of this one scene. That's a takes. lot. It's a yeah. lot of takes. And what's insane about that is not only did they do 99 takes, like they spent, I think like a couple, I think they spent like three days filming that scene. Um, not only did they do that, but then in post, they edited the conversation. So David Fincher, the director, would take like, they would take the sound, the, they would take the dialogue from one take and put it underneath the visual from another take because he would want the audio from one from one take and would and wanted the visual from another take and then there were there were other takes where he wanted like an expression but not the sound and so they're like it's not unusual to have like a reaction shot for for from one take and then the the dialogue response from a different take wow but, but nobody ever does like two different audio and visuals for the same uh, for like the one shot, like it's just unheard of. Like the level of precision that is required in that is unreal. Um, and it was something that I kept thinking about with all the different like levels, like with the different masters that I watched, it was like nothing ever goes to waste. There, a, a master looks at the world in like this zero sum kind of way. Like nothing goes to waste. You have to make use of, and like watching John Mayer, 
play the guitar and like do a solo. It's like he is using every inch of the guitar and and right. and and every inch of him of like his hand. Like he's like this one video. I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, but when he does he does a live performance of Ain't No Sunshine, um, which is one of my favorites. And just like in the middle of the thing, like he goes from like a like a regular like picking on it and doing the whole you know shredding guitar solo type thing and he just like starts slapping the guitar uh, and like slapping the string um in this way that i'd never seen before at least in a like in a rock and roll performance and it was like he he knows how to get every sound out of this thing like he knows how to squeeze every drop out of this lemon um and i just saw that like across disciplines masters like right. never waste a moment and I just think that's that's really impressive. Yeah, I really like that. And they've had to explore every inch of their craft in order to get to that point. Yeah, or or like you know the song uh, "Fire and Rain," mm-hmm. James Taylor. Like uh, great, great song, great great audience. song. One thing I never realized until maybe a year ago is I, I sat down and listened to it in um, a friend of mine's like really, really nice uh, surround sound studio uh, listening room situation, like with all the different speakers and everything. And he was like, listen to this. And he played the, he played the music. And I heard it, like there's a cello in there that I never knew about. There's like, it's like layered in, in under everything else. There's like this cello that's, that's, that's playing these like, these really soothing, smooth notes that it's just like kind of underneath it all. Right. And, and you don't notice it, but, but then once you've, once you've heard it and you go back, if you take it away, then like something is missing from the song. Right. Right. And that level of mastery where, you know, I, I don't think anyone would ever go up to that song and, and be like, you know what this needs? It needs cello. But but a master is like, wait, something is missing, and I'm not going to stop until I find that thing that's missing. Yeah, that's interesting. I I do, I do love those those discoveries, those revelations. After you know, I've, if I've listened to an album, you know, umpteen billion times, and it's like, oh, there's something there I've never noticed. That's that's also the mark of a master. Of every time you come back, there's yeah. something new. Like that. Yeah. That's how I feel with with something like uh, Lord of the Rings. Every time I read it. I, I'm like, there's some new literary thing that I noticed. There's some new language things. You know, there's all there's always something more. Tolkien packed so much in there, um, and I think that's also a sign that you're starting to understand and master whatever. I mean, what someone else has already mastered, but you're starting to truly understand it because you're starting to uncover some of those 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 depths a little bit. Yeah, Hemingway. Uh, has this great quote where he's he uh, a somebody who wanted to be a writer came and, and stayed with him for a little bit and and uh, Hemingway kind of wrote down the advice that he gave to the guy and he said Hemingway said you know if you're going to be a writer you have to read and the guy was like so what should you read and Hemingway listed like all of the classics you know like War and Peace and Anna Karenina and um, you know the Turn of the Screw and all these things you heard of the great books read them yeah <laughs> all and of then, them and then he the the guy was like why do i need to read those books and and Hemingway said because you need to know what you have to be 
and I thought that was great. Like you, if you're going right, to be, right. if, if you're going to be a master, a, like I love Hemingway's philosophy of writing where it's like, you got to get in the ring and you've got to, you've got to write to, if you're going to write, you better write to beat the people who have come before you. Like don't, don't get in for anything less. And I think masters are like that. Like they're not going to settle for anything less. Right. Um, but I also love it in order to do that, you have to submit first and you have to say, okay, teach me, teach me enough so that I can beat you, you know? Right. Well, it's the whole, it, it's, it's standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. It's also more than mere copying, right? Because any, any musician is going to spend, I don't know, however many of the first many years just copying what came before, just learning what came before right? They'll have mastered someone else's mastery before they can start to grow on that. That takes a lot of practice. Yeah. And it's actually an interesting thought because I was reading a book um, a couple months ago um, called How to Think Like Shakespeare. uh, And was talking all about how a a Renaissance education worked and and how we've kind of shifted into a different thing and why we should go back to a Renaissance education. It's really interesting. One of the things that they talked about uh, was Early, early writers like Shakespeare's day would have been learning by copying somebody else um, and, and by essentially like plagiarizing old, old scripts. Um, and the point was like, don't try to beat yourself out the gate. Learn from other people and learn by copying and by by imitating someone else's style um, after, you know, years and years of doing that, you start to develop your own style and you start to develop your own voice. Um, But that comes by virtue of doing the other thing. Right. So much more. I'm reading, um, I'm reading Carl Truman's book, uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self. You ever heard of that one? There's a lot of stuff I haven't read. No, this, this is uh, this is when you should pick up. It's really interesting. Um, he's basically, uh, I'll, I'll read the, the subtitle is, uh, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism and the road to sexual revolution. Um, it basically, it's a book talking about how the thoughts that are in the enlightenment kind of blossom and morph into, um, some of the ideas of like, um, sexual identity that we have today, um, and kind of gender dysphoria and that sort of thing. So it's a really interesting philosophical look at all of those things. Um, but one of the things that he talks about that we've left is he talks about the, the self as a, as a dialogical entity. We discover who we what, are. What does that mean? It means that we discover who we are by talking to other people. So okay. um, I am only able to know that I am me by the fact that I am not you. Um, Interesting. So, or put it another way, um, you know, if, I'm, if I hold up my, my coffee mug, right? I see, I see that there is a mug and I know that I am not the mug. I see. Yeah. Yeah. The mug is not. Yeah, me. That's interesting. That's something I think, uh, Jordan Peterson kind of talks about of like figuring out yourself more than just the physical reality, but figuring out who you are is this act of negotiation with other people at all times. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like that. Um, and, and I think it's really useful because the, the, the difference then becomes, if we say that, well, I have to be myself and we're, we're self-referential 
it gets really circular really fast and really exhausting where we're, we're trying to kind of like self-justify and you can do right. the whole, you can do the whole Descartes thing, but that kind of only gets you so far. Um, you won't really learn about yourself. In one sentence, Banjo just goes, eh, Descartes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of much, much bigger giants with that one. Um, more like crouching on those shoulders. Um, but anyway, uh, it's different. I, I, you know, part of the reason that we do this podcast is because you and I learn about what it means to be Christian men by talking to each other. Right. Yeah. To some extent, I would hope. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I don't come away from these conversations thinking like, I need to be more like JJ. Like often I come away from these conversations knowing how I disagree with you. Right. Well, I, I, I do definitely, uh, definitely experienced that myself. I'm like, man, Banjo, why would you think that? <laughs> but the same, like, but we keep doing it because we keep learning more about ourselves through it. Well, and, and we keep, I think we've both had those moments where like, oh, hey, you're right. I'm wrong. Let me, let me adjust that. Or that's the right idea that we both kind of figured out. Right. And, and through those conversations, yeah, we, we learn a lot. And there, I mean, that's, that's part of the practice of, of being a Christian man, I think. Yeah. And then, so we're able to do this with, with other things. Like, so, you know, if you want to be a writer, like, you know, like I want to be a writer, um, a lot of my work in practice at this, at this stage of my life is, all right, I'm going to try and write something like Cormac McCarthy. Like today I'm going to, I'm going to sit down and this will be my Cormac McCarthy imitation. Um, and then I just kind of like try and get as close to McCarthy as I can. Well, and you say that explicitly. That's a yeah. good thing because I definitely have, have done the thing where I sit down and I'm like, oh, I just accidentally copied one of my heroes without – like it has none of me in there. Right, right. And then I go back and I reread what I read and I think, okay, so w- what part of this doesn't sound like me? What what part of this is, is not me? Or maybe to put it more accurately, like because it's going to be a very smaller percentage, which, which is me? Like what's the thing that I do that McCarthy doesn't like to do? You know, like in, in my writing, I'm much more influenced by like P.G. Wodehouse and Jeeves Mooster. So I like some good comedic dialogue that goes on for a couple right, of pages. Right. You know, McCarthy doesn't do that. Um, but there are the things that Wodehouse does that McCarthy doesn't do. And I've kind of like stolen from both of those. Um, and I, th- I think we can do this in all sorts of areas, like you know, even like, um, you know, like rock and roll is borrowing from blues and from jazz and from yeah or like you know led zeppelin every once in a while would just like throw these like classical violins in there and you know just shake everything up you know if you can if you can borrow from all of these different areas um you can really develop something new um and i think that's a really interesting component of that mastery that maybe has fallen by the wayside a little bit even thinking about the whole idea of master versus apprentice the whole idea is that you, as an apprentice, go and sit under a master and say, teach me everything you know, and yep. then move on from there. Well, and that's something I, I see. You know, we, we go to college, but I feel like half the people I was around at college just complain about the teachers the whole time. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you are paying these people. This is what you're here for. To teach you. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, if you didn't want to learn, why are you here? On the flip mm-hmm. side, there is so much free information available. Like you could sit and take an entire course on YouTube now. YouTube's oh, yeah. amazing. And and you know, it, it there is no barrier to learning hardly anything these days. 
you can hire a coach for anything. You can hire a teacher online, do whatever you need to do, but you can learn it. Yeah. And I, I think, so then that makes me wonder, because why, are, why, aren't, why isn't everybody just a master of something? Sure. Why are there people that have mastered nothing? I think it's because it's difficult. Well, yeah, but it's, there's there's difficult on a personal level. Like there's no out, there should there are no external barriers, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well. Uh, no, I mean, I yeah, I hear that, but uh, but I think also there's like there's no external barriers to to easier pleasures. There's lower hanging. That's true too. We've we've got more information. We've got more inf- more ways to master something, but we have more ways to keep us from mastering that thing. <laughs> yeah. And like, I am amazed at the amount of time I see kids learning TikTok dances. Like, they'll uh, put effort into it. It's hilarious. Lots of effort, lots of time. Um, their homework assignment, less so. Um, but that's just me being an old fogey. Because um, I mean, we do this, I do the same thing where it's like, oh, well, I could work for an hour on my writing. Or I could watch this show I need to catch up on for an hour. Like I'm putting time and I'm putting effort into right. watching my favorite TV show as opposed to developing myself and, and building myself as that. So like we're just surrounded by pleasure. And I think that's really hard to get away from. One one thing I've started just in these last couple of weeks as we were talking about mastery and arts and that kind of thing is um, active engagement. Yeah. So I I – don't know if I read this somewhere or what I did. I don't know. I just went, you know, I watch, I watch YouTube. I like watching these videos where I'm learning stuff. That said, I feel like I'm not, I'm learning a fraction of this content because I, I watch a lot of it, but then I never put it in practice. So how can I, how can I effectively start to engage with this? I need to slow down these videos. I'm going to make them full screen format. No, no comments, no reading other stuff. None of that. I'm paying attention to whatever the person has to say. Yeah, I'm going to choose, especially if it's someone that does longer form style content, they don't have all the hooks to keep you in. So it requires you to pay attention. And then on top of that, I'm taking notes. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I if I can do all of that, and and work through a 30 minute video on whatever coding thing I'm wanting to learn or, or business practice or whatever it is, I'm going to take a lot more away from that than if I'm scrolling through shorts with the same guys conversation cut up into a million pieces. Right, you know, people take a Joe Rogan interview and cut it up into a million pieces, put it on YouTube. Yeah, that does nothing for the viewer. You're you're not getting the full context. You're not getting mm-hmm. the information. And if mm-hmm. the person's really an expert about whatever they're talking about, you want the full content. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and all of this, I think, really goes back to, you know, it it, it really goes back to what we want to do here at right. the for, at the forge. Uh, in that, like. The, the task that God gives Adam in the garden is even you know before the fall is look, here's all the animals, you know, here's the garden, tend the garden, you know, name the animals. This is, this is your place to have dominion of. We might even say to have mastery of, you know, and, um, our, our role as men, I think, and, you know, just as, as mankind more generally is to take dominion over that area that we have. And I think like the first place to begin is our mind and to say like, look, you, you need to do that active engagement. You need to be in that place where you're, you're tending that mental garden and, and working through every inch of it. Um, and not letting it 
run amok, not letting the weeds sprout, not letting, you know, everything wither and die. And that's what happens when we, I think, just give over to entertainment and don't, don't do the work of, um, yeah, mastering. Right. And, and on top of that, I think that requires the individual, you and I, to have some recognition of, um, where they lack to have a recognition that, that we have to keep learning. Uh, one thing, you know, I, I was just, I was just thinking through like everyone, I should not say everyone. It's a blanket statement. It's a bad idea of those, but uh, many people that I encounter just think they're right about everything. They have their worldview, right? They got it all down. Right. Yeah. Um, at every age, right? Like it's expected a 12 year old, right? I was a total, I was a, I was a, annoying 12 year old because I thought I had the world figured out. Now here I am and I'm, I'm a little over twice that age and I still think I've got the world figured out. There's no way that, but you know, I changed my opinion halfway between there and now, and I'm still changing opinions. So one, you know, and if everyone thinks they're right, then someone has to be wrong. Right. Most people have to be wrong. So I think that's, that's one thing I started doing and something I saw, uh, what, maybe it was an interview. Someone just said, you should, when you, when you enter a conversation or you're watching a video or reading a book, you're doing a couple things. If you're going to learn anything from it, you have to ask, what can I learn here? But a productive question for that is ask, um, you know, how, how am I wrong in my current way of thinking about this? Right. Identify where you're wrong rather than trying to like, because if you just say, what can I learn here? You could learn anything. I mean, you open up a book, there's a ton of information in there. You could try to memorize it all. You could try to do this all. But in the long run, what's going to be most productive is if that book influences you towards the truth. And how can you do that? Even if the book is completely wrong in its conclusions or it's a philosophical text you don't agree with, you can find where am I wrong in my current ideas rather than attacking that text. And that's a much more productive use of your time, especially because then you only need to find one thing as well. You just need to find, all right, what's one area I can change. Now you've gotten something from this text or gotten something from this video. And, and learning learning how to tell that you're wrong is a huge, like I'm working on that and trying to figure out how to explicitly say, I was wrong about this. How can I change? And I, I would, I would argue that that's a huge piece of, of apprenticeship anyway, is learning that process. And that can take you towards mastery, which I'm not, I would not say I'm a master of really anything yet. Now that we've talked through this, like there are skills that I definitely have, but I would not, I don't know that I'm a master. Well, we're young yet. We're young yet. It's true. It's true. Hey, everybody. We were running uh, pretty long in this episode, but we had too much that we were still chewing on and wanted to work through. So we decided to break this up into two parts. Uh, so get ready for part two. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the second part of our much longer episode. Please enjoy the second half of all of our thoughts. All of our thoughts? All of them? All of them. We have so many thoughts. Maybe too many, according to some. I, I would think so. I've, I gotta say, so just just by way of refresher for everybody, we we began this episode, we, we typically record our episodes at 7, uh, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, JJ six o'clock for me. Six o'clock, bright, like bright and early. Um, today we we ran long. We had some other things that had to come up, so we're we're 
fast fast forward in time now to 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard, and JJ is 5 p.m. Uh, so a That's whole day works. a whole day has passed, um, and I have to say that over the course of the whole day, one thing has been like eating away at my conscience, which is that um, I've been thinking about the fact that I've that uh, I I took quite the shot at uh, all all folks folks working on uh, electronic music types. And I, and I thought that is so unfair, uh, first and foremost, to our producer, Elliot, uh, and for uh, all the work that he does. So I just wanted to go ahead and write up at the at the front of this part too, you know, give give an apology to all those I, I probably offended with that, uh, with that jab. So thank you, Elliot, for your work. And uh, yeah, I hope you don't take out your vengeance on me on any online board games, you know, that we may play in the future. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I'm, it's interesting. That raises the question with the electronic stuff, which I, and I'm sure Elliot, uh, Elliot both appreciates that, but also I think he would acknowledge like there's different skills, like there's different masteries yeah. going on there. Um, the electronic side, you can put something together much faster. It, it can hit perfectly on the notes. So the, the skill that comes in is going to be more in the composition, more in the production, more in w choosing what samples, um, actually the, the creation of whatever song you're working on, which like our, our little, uh, score that we use for this podcast is partially electronic and partially real instruments. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's this, there's a new side there of producing that and blending that together to make it sound really good. Yeah. Putting it both at the same time. One, th one of the things I think I was getting at that or, or, um, uh, one of the things that I was, maybe I should have said instead is I think one of the interesting things about the mastery that's involved with something like a guitar or a violin or something like that, just taking instruments is that there are creative limitations to those things, um, that, that exist differently from something that in, then that's electronic and digital, right? So like the electronic keyboard is interesting because you can do so many things with it. There's almost an infinite, pos um, infinite amount of possibilities um, that can be accomplished. You know, you can change it into an organ, you can change it into uh, a guitar, you can change it into drums, you know, whatever you want to do on that keypad, you can do. Um, and it doesn't require the same kind of mastery that it takes to learn those instruments in their analog form. Um, but there's there's a particular skill and beauty, I think, that comes from saying, you know, I'm going to limit myself to only learning how to play the guitar and setting that creative limitation. Um, and I think that's the that's the particular gifting that I think is being lost a little bit. Not that one necessarily has more value than the other, um, but we live in a digital age, which means that we live in this sort of like infinitely potential age like there's always there's always more that we can do there's always more possibility and i think we've lost the desire i won't say the ability but i think we've lost the desire to limit ourselves and to say i'm only going to work on this one thing if that makes sense that does make sense and i think then how do you decide what you're going to work on how do you decide how to limit yourself. I've thought about this in my job, right? Cause I work yeah. in the tech, in the tech space. Um, 
the number of languages I could learn, the number of ways to solve a problem I could learn. The it it, it is it feels to to myself anyway. It feels like so many possibilities. I can't decide, so I just kind of have to pick something. How do you pick? Because at, by by virtue of you know, it, I've heard it said before, attention is our most valuable thing we have these days, right? That's what every yeah. company wants. They want our attention. So how do I decide to spend my attention on what I'm learning and on what I'm trying to pick up? Yeah. Um, one of the things that, one of the videos that we both watched, you sent to me, talked about how how fake uh, fake experts deal in absolutes. Or to put it to put it more eloquently, only a Sith deals in absolutes. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so I, I, I want to stay away from those because I, I, as I heard that, I was convicted because I think that's something that I tend towards, especially on this show. I tend towards absolutes and I tend towards saying like, right. this is always bad. And that's, you know, that's mostly so that you and I can have an argument and, and can come up with a new idea. But it's probably not my greatest tendency. Anyway, so let me do, uh, do this a little differently. Let's, tr let's try this instead. Um, what are your options? Like, what do you, when you look at what you can choose from, like, what are your, what's on the table? Like, are you asking directly in terms of the tech question? Yeah, I'm asking. Or just asking. In, in, in general. Um, there is a smorgasbord, as it were, of options as far as different certifications or further education that anyone in the computer science field can do. You have... Uh, you can go sort of more the hard skills route in in various uh, in-depth softwares or in-depth coding languages. You could go some more theoretical routes, learn some architecture, learn how cloud works, various stuff like that. You could go a very soft skills route if you're trying to go kind of the business side of tech, right? Mm -hmm. You want to learn how to interact better with people. Um, all of those are good things, right? And I want to clarify... Uh, as well, I, I definitely hold that um, as far as our, our, our work is concerned as Christians, mm -hmm. I think if, it, if it's not violating God's law, it's open, right? Right. So there are definitely things that violate God's law that I should not work on sure. in the tech space. That said, there's a ton of stuff still out there for, that I could choose, and I like it all. Mm -hmm. So at that point, if I like it, Maybe maybe I like some things more than others, so I can I can discount a bunch of stuff if I'm like ah, I'm not sure I'm interested in that. But there's still a bunch of stuff I'm interested in. So at that point, I have limited time, limited attention, limited resources in in uh, maybe it's a really expensive class or something. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what? I'm, I guess the my question is, what does an expert or someone who is already well-versed in his field, how does he decide, how does that expert decide this is the next thing to focus on? Um, how, do you, how do you decide what's most valuable in your life? I think based on God's law and then everything should follow from there. Well, I mean, like, how do, you, how do you rank value in your life, JJ? You as a person. Oh, specifically? Yeah, specifically. Uh, like I say, scriptures, and then kind of underneath that, right? Worship, church, community life, my family. So, so scripture is most valuable. Scripture is most valuable, and then church, then family, and family. Well, and and kind of the I should clarify 
the worship of God is more important than my family. That does not mean that church, the organization, the earthly organization sure. is necessarily more important. But that's that the spiritual, building. but that right. spiritual organization is, right? So there's kind of something that's a confusing thing for some people. So family's up there so like, yeah, taking care of my wife and child. Yep. Right. After that, it's do I have obligations to my community? And then what do I want to do? Right. It's not a very long, it's not a very deep list. So this is interesting. The the way that you assign value, the words that I'm hearing have to do with the way that they're they're all action oriented. You you assign value based on on the the worth of the action, right? So the most valuable action is spending spending time in scripture. Right. And then right. and then the next that one. That said, is, that said, I'm not great about spending more time in scripture than doing other than say watching movies. Right. Right. So there, um, there's a incongruity there sometimes. Sure. But it's what you which you at least cognitively would say is most is most valuable. How would you find value over, say, like possessions? I'm just curious. Like what kind of possessions? Just in general? Yeah, like how is it like if I gut gut check, is your computer more valuable than your copy of the Lord of the Rings? Uh, I think I would probably lose both of them pretty quickly, willingly. Willingly. Depending on depending on I mean circumstances, I guess. But like I try to uh, you know, I think I think about like if I lost if my entire house burned down, how would yeah. I how would I react to that? Well if it's all the, this stuff. If your house burned down, your wife and kids are already out of the house. Uh, what's the one thing you're grabbing on the way out the door? I mean, I, I honestly don't really know that I like if there's anything I'm trying to think if there's anything I need to grab on my way out the door. Like I, I do have like there's a couple of nostalgic things like a box of letters mm-hmm. from various stages of my life that might be top of the list. Okay, so but like, but like it's it that's a very relational. No, but that's right. That's, those are possessions. But like, so it's a relationship that makes even sense. even even the possessions that I have, like my copy of Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> Excuse me, my copy of Lord of the Rings. That's replaceable, yeah. right? Sure. I think about it. I guess I think about it in terms of what's irreplaceable. Yeah. Right. And I've tried to fill my life with, um, I try to have very few irreplaceable things because the more irreplaceable things you have, and that's just a perspective shift, right? If you mm-hmm. have a perspective of that's irreplaceable, um, then you become tied to it. So I think the reason that I bring this up, the way that I'm thinking about like how does a master choose what what to do is I think it's based on how they assign value to things. Like if what... Uh, what you want to be a master of is, is I think in some sense related to the, to the end result. So what do you find valuable? So like a business mogul might find money valuable. And so they might want to be an expert in the craft of making money. And that's going to allow them, to, they can choose the thing that allows them to make the most money say. Um, and, and that's how they're right. going to decide how they're a master. Um, but somebody who is a musician is is going to choose you know you're depending it depends on why they're a musician do you want to be a musician because you you feel that um grand collective events composed on an epic scale reveal something about human nature you're probably going to go become a 
you know, an orchestra conductor, right? That's probably where your value right. is, you know? Uh, do you, uh, do you most enjoy, or do you most value, um, providing some meaningful words for close friends, right? You're probably going to be a folk singer, you know, you're probably going to have like that kind of like, uh, close connection. Do you value innovation and pushing the envelope of what can come next? Um, you might get more involved in like, uh, in an electronica type thing, you know, and those are all good and they're all valuable. Um, but what do you value most is going to going to determine what you find most valuable. You know, I think about writers like Faulkner and Hemingway, you know, they were writing, they were writing because they, they saw that work is valuable because they saw a world that was full of fearful people who didn't know what to do next. And so their whole craft came from them trying to echo these classical heroes of, of the Iliad and the Odyssey and trying to, to, to bring forth some, you know, some new modern classic, you know, some new modern thing that could help people in their despair and give them hope and give them something to look forward to. And that was what fueled their writing. Um, and so that kind of seeps into every detail of what they do. Um, and I think of, think of the quote, I think it's Nietzsche actually who says it, of he who has a why can suffer through almost any how. Pretty sure that's Nietzsche. Um, and I think that's a little bit at what, what's at the heart of being a master. Not that I, you know, enjoy quoting Nietzsche, but, um, you know, you got a few things, right. And I think that might be one of them. Like the, why you do something I think has to govern how you do something too. That's, that's twisting mm. its words a little bit. Um, and it wasn't, it makes you know, sense though. Yeah. It's not the, it's not the point of his quote, you know, and I'm not, not saying that what he, that's what he was getting at, but I think the idea is the same. You know, you need to know why you're doing something in order to know how to do it. So there, there's a big piece of that, you know, figuring out where you fit into the grand scheme of things really matters then. Yeah. Uh, Calvin in his institutes, John Calvin, that is, um, in um, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he talks about, um, you know, he's a classical humanist and he talks about the importance of right learning. I was listening to another podcast that was talking about this today. And I was reminded, or the other day, and I was reminded of this, but you have to learn things in the right order, right? Um, this is why, um, you know, um, I'm in the, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church here in the PCA. Yes. Yep. Yep. So that reformed, uh, that reformed Presbyterian world, one of the things that we really think is valuable is, um, how do we think? Because it, how we think affects how we live, right? Orthodoxy affects orthopraxy, we say. Um, Wonderful and, words. Yes, big fan. Um, and it starts with the little, link, little things, like where do we think that knowledge comes from? I'm reading a systematic theology um, right now from a guy named Herman Bovink that's been really helpful. And he's, the place where he starts is um, the revelation of God. And he, he begins with the distinction between general revelation and special revelation. And why does that distinction matter? And in part, it matters because what's the ultimate source of our knowledge? Well, it's God. Um, and if we operate with the inverse assumption that man is the beginning of our knowledge, we get Descartes, who we already mentioned and threw under the bus in this episode. So I'm going for a record. 
because we're going to do it again. Um, if we start with, I think, therefore Just I am. hitting the bus in reverse. And- <laughs> <laughs> if we start with, I think, therefore I am, we're starting with the wrong source of knowledge. We can't start with man as a basis for knowledge. We have to start with God. Um, and But then think about, uh, think about God, um, and we can think about our, our, our mastery. Because again, I think this is what we're, I think what we're called to is mastery. I think we're called to uh, make a dominion of our minds and make a dominion of the world around us. Um, not in a, an overbearing way, but in a cultivating way, in a making the garden to grow and to be lovely kind of a way. Um, and so exactly. how does God reveal himself? Well, he reveals himself through scripture, but he also reveals himself in the things he makes, right? We are created in the image of God. We might be described as the masterwork of of God, the creator, right? Um and so God reveals who he is in us, in, in who we are. We get to see the image and we get to see uh, a glimpse of who God is corrupted, of course, and, and, and broken. Um, so I think we get to reveal ourselves in the things that we make. Um, and I think when we realize that, I think that gives us this, this freedom and this liberation in limitation to get poetic about it for a second. Um, where okay, interesting freedom and liberation and limitation. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in this idea. So, um, take tennis. I may have mentioned this analogy before on the show. Um, but, uh, David Foster Wallace is a, he's one of my favorite writers or I'm a fan, a fan of his, let's just put it that way. Um, he was a huge tennis fan. Um, and he writes in his book, infinite jest, um, about uh, the beauty of tennis. Um, and one of the beauties of tennis is that it is this simple game that is totally governed by its boundaries. There are these lines that make up a tennis court. Um, and those lines are arbitrary, but without those lines, you don't have a game. And without the net in the middle, you don't have a game. Um, and within those lines, you have an infinite number of possibilities of how the game could go, right? The ball can land in any spot within that place in any pattern, in any complexity, right? Um, the ball can be going at any speed, at any drop, at any spin, all this all this sort of stuff. But you can't have any of that complexity and, and beauty and, dare I say, expression of the human spirit that you get in a game without the rules, without the boundaries, without the limitations. Same thing happens in like poetry, right? Uh, our best poetry... Uh, all apologies to fans of free verse. Our best poetry comes in forms, in poetic forms. Take the sonnet. You can achieve a level of poetic mastery by limiting yourself to 10 syllables a line in an unstressed, stressed pattern, right? Um, and once you get to follow those rules, you get to play with those rules, you get to bend them, you get to break them, you get to play with people's expectations. You don't get that with free verse. Or you don't get it. I think the best free verse would establish some, like the author would establish limitations that may only be known to his or herself. Right, right. So E.E. E. Cummings would be a great example of this. He he is a master of his craft in the sense that he has mastered every possible rule of the semicolon, the period, the comma, the dash, ellipses, spacing, all of these things. And he says, okay, how can I break this to its like absolute limit? How can I how can I totally deconstruct? what a sentence should be. 
um, how grammar should work. And he makes it work and he makes a, he makes a form out of it, but he only kind of is able to do that by in, you know, um, forcing his own rules upon the system. If that makes sense. Um, so all this to say, I think as I look at different examples of mastery, I think, I think we often, you know, we could talk about like big brain and galaxy brain, like that kind of a meme idea of like, Oh, this like constant expansion of infinite knowledge. And this is what makes a master. Um, right. Uh, but I think, I think our mastery comes so much more by winnowing down our possibilities and by saying, yeah, you know, a self-imposed limitation and just saying, no, this is what I'm going to work on. And this is the idea I'm going to have. And, you know, this is the, this is the path that I'm going to walk. Um, so, you know, for me, I, um, there's a lot of different areas of literature that I could get involved in. Um, a lot of different fields I could study um, and a lot that I'm interested in. But the the one that I've kind of ended up with, like I just look at my shelf, most of my books are either 20th century literature or uh, American Southern lit. Also pre or post 20th century, right? So like that's where I've decided to, to spend my focus is like, okay, so I've already built up this collection. I can start to spread out in a few different areas like theology or philosophy or some of those things. But my depth of knowledge in those fields is going to increase if I kind of limit myself to the metaphors that I find in Southern Lent or 20th century American Lent. You know, um, I get to expand what I think about, say, you know, uh, Plato's analogy of the cave, right? I'm able to take my knowledge of Plato's Plato's cave and then apply it to Flannery O'Connor, right? And my I expand my knowledge of of Plato's cave by the analogy of Flannery O'Connor's revelation, say, and vice versa. Um, but by expanding my knowledge, the depth of my knowledge in one area, I'm able to expand the breadth of my knowledge in other areas because I'm giving myself more of a framework in one set um, that gives me a way to process the world hmm. outside. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think that is difficult for someone like me who I tend to at any one time have so many different projects rolling that I can never give them uh, enough attention. Yeah. Right. So I will have my work projects. I'll have some personal projects some hobbies going uh, some community things I'm trying to be a part of. And it, and it grows to the point where like, it's all things I want to do. And I, I can't stand telling people, Oh, I'm busy. Cause I don't, I don't always feel busy cause I'm enjoying mm -hmm. so much of it, but it gets to the point where each of those things can be good, but the attention that they deserve, I can't give. Jack of all trades, master of none. Exactly. And learning how to, hone a particular thing and be okay with letting some other things go by the wayside. That's difficult for me anyway. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's really tough and I'm, I'm not, I haven't been really happy about it. Um, until, until recently, um, in the, maybe in like the last month I started to really see the value of it. I think. Um, you think that had to do with some of this practicing your craft stuff we've been working on? It did, you know, and it all started with 
with the Cormac McCarthy episode that we did, because I started to spend more time in McCarthy and I started to spend more time looking at the world that he's constructed. Um, and I, over the last couple of months, I, I've collected his entire, all of his works. And I've realized that just like, if you take all 11 of his books, you get a, a masterclass education in um, Renaissance literature, in modern philosophy, in modern science, in nuclear physics, like the, the layering in his stories that connect to all these other things are so rich and so deep. Um, and if I spent the rest of my life becoming a master of McCarthy, as a result, I would have to become a master of these other things. I would have to develop a knowledge of these other things. I could do the same with Faulkner, you know, um, mm -hmm. or, uh, or Hemingway. Uh, and for a lot of these guys, it's like right on the surface. Like as I lay dying, the title of one of Faulkner's novels is, uh, is a reference to like an obscure line in the Odyssey. Um, at the sound and the fury is a reference to, um, Mac. Um, yeah. Sound of the fury. That's Macbeth. Yep. Uh, I had a, had a, Blank space there for a second. Yeah. Sound of the Fury to Macbeth, Absalom, Absalom, a reference to um, David and the Bible. Um, so it's just like, yeah, if you if you go and sit under the feet of a master, like I think a true master who is who has developed this breadth in themselves, they give you a framework and they give you a window from which to launch out into the rest of the world. Um, you know, I don't know what that looks like in any other field. So I don't, I wouldn't say necessarily like, it would look the same for everybody, but I, but I do think like God is a God of all creation. And, you know, as, as Kuiper says, there is not one square wrench over creation in which the Lord Jesus does not point and declare it mine, you know, um, or his, however you want to translate that properly in grammatical sentences. Um, but so if I, if I spend my time learning about music, that is, of a piece with mathematics is of a piece with literature at some level, right? Um, if I spend my time thinking about, uh, you know, computers, I'm going to have to get into electricity and I'm going to have to go back to, you know, Newton and I'm going to have to go back to, or not Newton, Franklin, I'm going to have to go Franklin and the enlightenment and all, like all these other things. They're all, there's this, this, this huge web of human history all tangled together. And I think the question is, do you want to do you want to zoom out and like try try to take this giant snap snapshot of the whole thing to understand it, or do you want to enter in at one particular node of the maze, so to speak, and just start to work your way as far as you can through it? Um, I don't know that one is necessarily better than the other. One is, I think, they're both challenge they're both challenging and they're both they both have their ups and their downs, but I think I think masters tend toward that that incision point and then move out that's my that's my suspicion i won't i won't say that as an absolute though well you're not a master i'm not you're an expert on on the topic that we know of um i definitely think it's interesting you're kind of talking about you know picking an area and just starting from there yeah right that that's an interesting idea because Inevitably, that helps that that will start to make up some of your decisions for you because if one thing just leads to another, yeah, right. There's freedom in that. I didn't have to. I just chose the starting point. 
Yeah. Right. The difficulty comes, what if you have a goal that you want to work towards? Mm -hmm. A goal of producing this novel, maybe for you, or sure. a goal of for me, getting this particular certification in software, you know, something like that. How do you then, if you are wanting to expand your overall breadth of knowledge, and you also have this particular goal, what's your, how do you decide your incision point? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's, I try to remember if we talked about this before, but I think it's, you know, he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Uh, he was faithful in little will be given much. Um, the, I think it's called the Matthew 20 principle, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he who demands Matthew, I can't remember exactly which, which some, chapter. some economics major who listens to us is going to correct me on that. And I'm going to, I'm going to take it like a champ. Um, cause I don't remember these things. Um, uh, but anyway, I, I think it's the Matthew tw 20, I'm going to say Matthew 20 principle. Is it not 25? Uh, it, it might be. Let's let's get off of this before we uh before we lose everybody. Um, no, but the basic idea is that like he, you know, to whom, to he who has more will be given. To whom who ha has not more will be taken away. There's like this idea that if you, um, it's a parable of the talents. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Anyway, I've been thinking in connection with this. Tie this thread over to something else, hopefully more interesting. Um, I've been reading a biography on Napoleon lately because i'm prepping for the big ridley scott movie that's coming out this thanksgiving so i really want to see that um and i i was just amazed at how this guy has like no, almost nothing at the beginning of his life i mean he's not like poor really he's he's comes from like a semi-noble family but he's nobody of note he's nobody of consequence his family has no major connections um, but he just decides to be a master of the classics. Like he just decides he's going to like know he's going to learn everything that he can from an early age about like Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Charlemagne, like all of these people. Um, and that's where he begins his knowledge. Um, that's that's what he studies. And as time progresses, he finds his place in the in the new republic, and then he finds his place in the empire, and you know, dominates half of Europe, and. I think in I think in part, you know, part of that is just he kind of chose as as Providence would have it, he chose the right thing at the right time. You know, he chose to be, become an expert in military right. history. Um, There's some of that going on for sure. And you can't control that. But at the same time, I can't help but think that one of the gifts that Napoleon had was to have a framework that he could be sure of in a time where nobody was sure of anything. You know. In a time where the French world was falling apart, Napoleon always knew where North was, you know, and I think that allowed him to be um, courageous in a way that maybe other people weren't. Right? He always he always knew how to process the information. Right? Um, you've probably read about the OODA loop, you know, observe, right. orient, decide, act. Right? Um, just a super helpful framework, and I I think. Choosing whatever incision point you do, whether or not it's the quote unquote right one that you know sets you on the on the path to take the throne of France, I think it gives you a place where you can observe and then orient before you make your decision and you act. Benjo has just revealed his in-game. He's gonna write himself into the throne <laughs> of France. <laughs> what, they're just gonna surrender anyway. Facts. I wouldn't I wouldn't have sorry, to write sorry, anything. the just sorry to any French people listening to this, but <laughs> Um, 
yeah, anyway, so I don't know if that's super helpful or not. I'm I'm kind of I feel like I'm I'm just hitting the same horse in the same spot. No, it's helpful though because uh, as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking through how do you then determine what the right framework is, right? Because and you, if you're looking at someone like Napoleon, who just decided this is the framework I'm going to do, like, I mean, do you know if there was any particular reason he decided to pick that, or was that just he happened well, I, on a good one? I think he looked and he said, "What works." Right. So like, who did he want to be? He wanted to be Julius Caesar. He wanted to be um, Alexander the Great. So he's like, okay, so these guys were masters. These guys did it. What did they do? What did they do? Right. And then you, you follow that system. Right. So, so it's a, it's to become a master. You definitely need masters before you. Right. Like we were talking about this morning, you know, talking about like the, the dialogic self, right. Uh, you you need somebody that you can look at and say, I am not him. How do I become like him? Kierkegaard talks about this, right? He says um, that he who in despair wishes not to be himself, so he is, in, he is in despair who does not want to be himself, right? So I'm sad because I'm not JJ, okay? Uh, As are many. <laughs> <laughs> the way that I ease my pain is I try to become more like JJ, right? Um, and I can grow closer to that ideal. Ultimately, I, I won't really be happy until I realize that I cannot be JJ and I can only be as God made me, right? Um, and I my desire ultimately must be to be more like God and not to be more like even myself, right? Because that's that self-referential thing. I have to desire to be more like God. I have to treat... Um, God is that ultimate dialogue, so to speak. Um, so I, th- I think we have to choose masters who will pull us to where we need to be, who are, who will point us. And, you know, this goes back to our very first episode, you know, um, I think this was our first episode talking about heroes, you know, talking about who are yeah, your first heroes. or second somewhere in there, you know, who do you admire? Who do you want to be like? Um, I asked my students just, just the other week, I asked them, who do you admire? You know, who are you heroes? And I was struck by how cynical the responses were. So many of them were like, oh, I, you know, there's nobody who's worth rooting for. You know, there's nobody who's worth celebrating. They always all turn out to be bad guys in the end. Um, and I thought that was really hmm. sad because if you don't have, if you don't have a hero, if you don't have, um, kind of a North star to admire a master to, to look to um, like, how do you have hope? You know, how do you have any aspiration? You know, I think you just kind of wallow in what you have and that's, that's no good. So, I, you know, I'm an, I'm an advocate now for, for heroes. Well, there's certainly, I understand that cynical perspective a little bit because it does seem like every hero that we have does have some flaws. So how do you accept that? Right? Or even even yeah. the people and, and, and some some of those heroes have more flaws than others. So how can you a, a naive approach would be to say you can't learn from someone with flaws. Yeah. And Aristotle talks about the purpose of tragedy, you know, what we desire in a tragedy is we desire a noble hero. We need we need to see in tragedy, we need to see somebody that we admire. And then we need to see them fail. Um, and the reason that we need to see that is because um, 
that that hero teaches us how to suffer nobly. You know, it teaches us that um, the world isn't isn't right. Like the things are broken here. Um, and um, there's a, a professor. I think it. I think he's at Baylor. I could be wrong about that. Um, Alan Noble, Doctor Alan Noble, writes a book um, called The Disruptive Witness. Um, it's a really good book. Highly recommend it. Um, and in it, he talks about how Christians should be among like the premier, tra- you know, tragedians of our day, um, because the beauty of tragedy is that it tells us that our world is broken. Um, like you don't leave a tragedy without saying like it shouldn't have been that way. And the only way that that is possible is, you know, in kind of, you know, to take from Lewis, um, something better must be there, right? Our, our soul is crying out for something better to be there. Um, and I, I, I think that's part of why we need masters of our craft and, and particularly masters of the arts, uh, masters of, of music and poetry, um, because we need people who are able to say, look, the world is broken. It has its own beauty, but it's broken, and we need to feel that pain because we need to be pointed to something greater than ourselves. We need to be pointed to that heavenly place where there will be no tears, there will be no sickness, there will be no sin. Um, and that's what tragedy does. It says this place is broken, um, but there must be something better. That's interesting because that goes directly to you know, even, even the perfect man. Christ, he has the worst thing happen to him, right. death. Not only that, but he dies everyone's death, right? Yeah. It's the worst of the worst. And so there's that underst- understanding that even even the, the, the perfect example, the perfect master of everything, if the worst possible thing can happen to him, Of course, terrible things are going to happen to flawed people, right? Of course, then there's the whole discussion of, yes, but the worst thing doesn't happen ha- does not have to happen to flawed people because they have their example in Christ. So there's there's a spiritual component to that. Well, it's it's even more than that. It's not just that we have our example in Christ; we have our salvation in Christ, right? Exactly. The, exactly. The master. What's amazing about Christ is that the noble, the master, dies for the slaves. And not only dies for the slaves, but dies for the slaves so so that the slaves are not killed for the fact that they killed the master, right? Um, like, right. We 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 can't ever leave that, and we can't say it's ever anything less than that, um, because otherwise we lose our salvation, right? Christ Christ cannot be an example; um, he has to be our savior, and that's a um, it's a fine distinction, I think. Um, but a necessary one. That's, I just had a whole swirl of thoughts all hit me at once in that. I think as we seek after Christ in that example, we can kind of, we want to grow from just being masters of whatever we happen to be good at, right? Some people can be very good at a particular subject, but they can be terrible people. Mm -hmm. So you want to grow from, you want to grow from being a master of your subject to kind of being a master of, of life in a way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and you can only do that, I think, through Christ. Yeah. And as you learn, as you learn that, maybe, maybe you're very good at whatever these disciplines are or these arts, whatever it is. But I think to truly be considered like that, that 
that man is a good man. He needs to have grown in such a way that he can look at life and with the assurance of Christ, he can, he can, he can work through it in a solid way. I don't, I don't know if I could put that into words. I only know sort of what that looks like because other great men have gone before me. Yeah. But, but does that make sense, Banjo? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you need, I, I think any, uh, any truly great man can only be great in as, and as much as he's modeling Christ. Right. Right. And right. that, that can be in, div, in different ways. You know, we can say that Alexander the Great maybe models Christ the King in the way that he conquers, right? Christ is right. a conqueror. Interesting. Interesting. You know, he, uh, he conquers, you know, Christ conquers death, like Alexander the Great conquers Persia, you know, um, you know, you can, you can say that, but, um, you could also say, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, withstands suffering the way that Christ withstands suffering, you know, in like, uh, or, or, um, trying to think of like a better one. Anyway, like any great man, you can, you can identify their aspects you know, uh, Oppenheimer's wisdom, uh, or knowledge, maybe we should say is a better word is modeled after the omniscience of God. Um, and so you can, you can see how God is reflected in his creation. And yet in every creation, there is lacking the glory of the creator. There is lacking the perfection and um, some other element is deficient, right? So Alexander's conquering nature uh, is is there, but you don't have Christ the peacemaker in Alexander. You don't have Christ uh, the sacrificial lamb. You don't have uh, Christ um, who brings the children to himself. Um, Christ the healer, right? Um, you can only see certain aspects of the one that we are meant to admire in the, the, the finite man. Um, and yet we're, we're still pointed in, in there, you know, there's a reason it draws us to, uh, there's a reason we're drawn to men like Alexander, or a reason we're drawn to men like Julius, Julius Caesar, um, is I think we, we behold something of the image of God in them at a, at a certain fevered pitch. And yet, um, without that, you know, they will all, they will always fall short because they are not the God man. And that's the difference. That's fascinating. I have never thought about that as being why certain people, even though they're so flawed, they're sinners, they're pagans, even mm -hmm. why we, why they're worth studying. That's fascinating. Yeah. And how you can take those, those good traits, whatever they excel at and, and bring them into kind of, kind of take dominion of them for Christ in, in a, as you practice that mastery. That's, that's cool. I like that a lot. I don't really have much more to respond to that <laughs> other than that, that provides, I think for young Christian men, a good framework, right? We don't have to pick our framework. Yeah. Our framework, our framework is handed to us. We have scripture, right? So it's our first duty to study scripture mm -hmm. and then take in your case, whatever you're writing, how do you, how do you bring it into that context? How do you, how do you not, not Christianize it, right? You don't want to just slap a Bible verse on something. No, but how do you compare it to the truth? 
Right, there right. is truth. How do you bring it under that truth? I think also something that's really helpful, uh, just to just to advocate for uh, reformed theology for a minute. Um, the standards are really helpful. You know, diving into uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, it's not a long read. It's a little old fashioned, but it's so rich and it's so worth it. Um, and it's not gospel, um, but it is so helpful in beginning to plumbing the depths, you know, beginning to plumb the depths of the Christian faith and beginning to, you know, see the framework of the, of the world that is there, you know, or even beginning to dive into covenant theology, you know, and seeing the framework that God provides almost in this literary story in this, this redemptive history, um, and, and diving into just the riches that are there. Um, and I think, I think that is, just super helpful and key because it, instead of beginning to float away in the infinity of possibility, which is so overwhelming and anxiety inducing for finite people. Um, Mm -hmm. and instead you get to put your feet on the ground and instead of, and I'm quoting here from Emmanuel Levinas, who we'll have to talk about it some other time. Um, instead of trying to understand the world in its totality, instead of trying to understand everything about the world from every conceivable angle, instead you say, I'm a finite being. And every morning I get to wake up and perceive the infinite and look into the infinite finitely. Um, I can only touch so much of the infinite on any given day. Um, But that's so freeing when you realize that. Instead of trying to hold the whole sea and, and drink it all up, I think it allows you to just like take a little cup of it and to study what's in that cup. Um, and there's a wealth, a world of information in that cup. And that allows you to see the whole rest of the big picture bit by bit, bit by bit. Right. In fractions. Yeah. Very, very small fractions. All right. On to the next challenge. As a reminder, challenges last for 10 days. That's Monday through Friday for two weeks. They are simple daily tasks to grow us as men. Uh, This next challenge is a continuation in theme of this exploration of mastery, this exploration of what it takes to be an expert, um, with an emphasis on not just practicing your craft, but on improving in it, on growing in it. So the challenge itself is identify, first off, Identify what is something in your craft that is uh, at least somewhat measurable from maybe an objective standpoint or or you can at least track progress in some way. Um, And then do that every day for just a few minutes. An example might be, uh, we were talking about this before, Banjo. Um, If you are, if you're writing, you, a lot of times you don't get feedback until you've submitted that whatever you're working on to your teacher or to uh, an editor somewhere to to review. What if uh, instead you take 10 minutes, you say, here's my stated goal in this 10 minutes. I'm going to write like Cormac McCarthy or maybe pick another author. And then you hand that to a friend who knows that author and you immediately have them say, give me feedback on this. Just in a very short period, right? This does not need to take more than 10 or 15 minutes. Um, Maybe it's, it's, a little more objective, like uh, if you're doing coding exercises, and there are tons of little 15-minute coding exercises on the internet, 
uh, that's very objective, right? You either succeed or you don't. So find some kind of objective way to measure progress. And, and I think that, that, could, that can be in some ways more helpful. I think it'd be interesting uh, to journal on this a little bit. Um, but see if that's more helpful than just sitting down and practicing your craft, right? Right. Like you need to practice your skills if you're a musician. But how do you how do you measure whether or not you're improving on a particular song or something? Yeah, Thoughts, I, I think the the bottom line up front on this the short version is get um, practice your craft, uh, get feedback, track your progress. Right. So Quick feedback, immediate feedback. Yeah. So it's do your activity right, and then you know, do it in front of somebody, do it with somebody who knows more than you. You know, I think it's an opportunity to, to practice some humility here and to say, look, I need help. Um, can you tell Ooh, me? Yeah, I'm... even better. Yeah, pick up picking a master to work with. That'd be cool. Exactly. And saying, look, you, you know, I don't know everything about this. Can you check me? Can you, can you check me? You know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a spot check in lifting. Um, and, and get that feedback so that you can track your progress and, and I think the value there is is not so much to say, I'm in the middle. So I'm I'm in the middle of grading season right now for my students. Who, if any of them are listening to this, and you shouldn't be saying that out loud, um, but uh, it, it, trust me, life gets complicated if the students find podcasts. Anyway, um, but their their value of life is not in their grades. Like their their worth as people is not in their success at a task. Um, but I, but I think there is value in seeing that progress because it, it shows you where you need to grow. How do you need to improve? What, what's separating you from being a master? You know, if your aim is to be a master, what's, what's in the way, right? Um, and so finding a true master, or at least someone who knows a, a little bit more than you, finding someone to, to give that information and to say, hey, I noticed that you could improve at this, right? I noticed you could, you could change this. Um, that gets you closer to that goal and that's valuable. I like that a lot. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it'll be, I think it'll be helpful. I might have to send you some stuff to, uh, to critique for me. That'd be fun. We could pull out one of, one of our little poetry sessions. Oh, that'd be yeah. fun. That'd be good. Yeah, we yeah, should do that. Really good. Not that either of us are masters, but we can give good feedback. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Sounds good. Very good. This has been a special episode of the Forging Honor podcast in two parts. Music and production is by Elliot George. For more information about what we do or to learn how to get involved, visit our website at forginghonor.com. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to like, subscribe, and give us a rating to bring others into the Forging Honor journey. On our website, you'll find information on how to do the challenges alongside us, as well as links to the many resources we mention in the show. And we do make a small amount from any purchases you make through our website links, so thank you in advance. Thanks for taking time with us today. We hope you'll take up the work alongside us and join us in the task of forging honor. We'll see you next time.